Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Far too often, discussions of important issues, crucial issues, become the old left right battle, ultimately becoming a fake fight, and a false choice. But in Utah this week, there was a major victory for criminal justice reform. A bill was passed that has the support of everyone. Black Lives Matters, police departments, left and right, Democrats and Republicans. Salt Lake County DA Sim Gill uh, is here to talk about the duty to intervene bill and why this is so good for everyone. Uh, and again, this was a bill that was Senate Bill 126, uh, that talks about this. It was introduced by uh, Senator Jan Iwamoto and Representative Ryan Wilcox. And uh, Sim Gill, we appreciate you joining us today. Uh, this is really one of those where everyone kind of set the usual battle lines aside and really worked to come up with the the best solution. So first, tell us, what does this bill actually do? Well, first of all, you're absolutely correct. This is a one of those pieces of legislation where different uh, positions put aside their differences, and came up with a great solution. So what this does, Boyd, is that it codifies the existing constitutional duty for law enforcement officers to intervene when they see another officer engage in police misconduct and to report that misconduct to their supervisors. Specifically, what this bill requires uh, also the Police uh, Standards and Training Council to adopt those minimum standards and uh, requires officers to report when they observe that police misconduct. So supervising officers know the problematic behaviors within their departments. And it also provides that officers who observe and report the misconduct may not be retaliated against for making that report. Mm. And that is really important because we know that good intentions can be written down However, if they're not put into practice, and if you don't cultivate, nurture, and encourage the uh, encourage the most, uh, then what ends up happening is that it becomes bad practice. It leads to bad outcomes. And so this is why this uh, bill is so important, because it will not only change the uh, culture, but it actually honors the good men and women in law enforcement who do take their jobs seriously and want to do it with great honor and distinction. And it does not uh, minimize their conduct, but it actually elevates that conduct and uh, protects it. Yeah, uh, that's so important. You, you've touched on so many crucial things in terms of honoring the good week, because we always talk about that. You know, we sadly, we, we report and we hear a lot of the, the bad apples and those who have uh, behaved badly in, in their role in law enforcement. Uh, and often we don't hear enough about the, the good. And so being able to frame that uh, and have that. I think is so critical because then it is we're outcome based and we're building a culture that really values that. And uh, I know that you were part of this this process and and, I, and just help us understand that a little bit, because this is one of those that I want people to get that far away from the, the cameras and the press conferences and the microphones. Uh, this is one of those hard work, heavy lifting, 
two years of work and collaboration between your office, the Utah Chiefs of Police. Give us a little backstory in terms of the kind of collaboration it took to get this bill across the line. Certainly. I, I, you know, this is something that was very near and dear to us. It was something that we talked about in our 22 of reforms. It, it's been hard work uh, of the last couple of years. And as you mentioned, this is a collaboration between the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, the Sheriff's Association, the DA's office, ACLU of Utah, and the NAACP, Utah, Lives, uh, Utah Chapter of Black Lives Matter. And part of that was that, unfortunately, we can get existing in our silos. We can blame the other person, and we want what we want. But if we really want to solve our community's problem, we, then we have to recognize that everybody has a valid point. And how do we actually operationalize that valid point? So you may not get 10 out of 10 things, but getting 8 out of 10 things moves us in the right direction. So this is what meaningful reform really looks like. It has to be collaborative. It has to be consensus building. It has to be codified because it has to be sustainable. And, that, and if it's sustainable, then it can be systemic. And so that requires hard work. It's a, it requires us push, putting our egos aside. And it's really about serving our community because at the end of the day, as you were mentioning, when you fail to hold bad officers accountable, good officers suffer. So it protects good officers, it protects agencies, and it introduces that culture without fear of retaliation. And ultimately, it builds the trust and gives us the legitimacy that we all desire and expect as a community of citizens. So it was a lot of putting aside ego, and it's about saying, what does that solution really look like? And if we want it to be meaningful, what do we have to do to achieve it? Yeah, and I love the fact that you got to the the sustainability component. Sometimes you get these kind of bills, and you kind of have the warm, fuzzy components to it, the nice titling and and some of that. But uh, when it comes to the outcomes, and can we actually sustain this over time, uh, that's really the test. And I, I, I think you worked through that process in order to create a system, again, that drives culture, uh, that honors the, the good uh, women and men of law enforcement, and then has a system so that you can sustain this so it does become the culture. Uh, abs- absolutely. Episodic wins are, uh, are, are passing wins. They are empty because after a passage of time, we go back to whatever we're doing. So if we want the long-term kind of changes that we desire and, and deserve, it requires effort. And that's why I always said that if we want different outcomes, then we need to change the law. And we can bring the different uh, opinions and different positions and come up with a workable solution. And that's why I'm telling you, this is a paradigm shifting uh, piece of legislation, which is going to give us great benefits down the line. And it has the buy-in of all impacted parties. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we win as a community of citizens because at the end of the day, all of us, prosecutors, judges, community act- activists, law enforcement, we're there to serve our community. Uh, and that's so important. And, and I, I think that ultimately the the result of all of this, we, we have talked so much over the past couple of years about that lack of trust, institutional yeah. trust. And whether it's in law enforcement or whether it's in the courts or whether it's in the political process, there's so many places where us as citizens have lost trust it seems to me that this type of bill, with all the collaboration you've described and all the components that you've outlined, is a real model in terms of this is how you build trust in institutions, in individuals, and in society. Yep, and, and we can have those processes which can be transparent, which can be objective, and which we, we can hold in an aspirational way, right? This is going to improve 
and protect not only good officers, but improve those agencies. And there's a process that uh, we can do so without uh, compromising our good ideals and values. And so in that sense, that's why I'm really excited because it was a lot of hard work and everybody contributed to its success. And this is a community win for all of us. Uh, Fantastic. Sim Gill, Salt Lake County District Attorney, thanks so much for joining us and for your part in this really important piece, uh, a great model uh, for not just law enforcement, not just for this particular issue, but for so many as well. Sim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, Janetta Williams from the NAACP joins us to discuss the conversations we should be having about race in Utah. We had a big program on that yesterday. We're going to dip into a meeting that Janetta Williams convened yesterday with some more great outcomes and ideas in terms of how we do this better in the state of Utah. Stay with us. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.